You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth, and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare and spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people, and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Evil minds at plot destruction. Death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World this week Broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite Listen to the Anarchist Woolless Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Scarn. I'm hosting today's program from the studios of Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne, broadcast across the country, north to south, east to west, up and down and around across every state and territory, streaming live on 3cr.org.au via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. It is also podcast. So you can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Firstly, mainly for our Melbourne listeners and uh, members of the community radio station in uh, Melbourne, just like to thank people for going to the Michael Smith commemoration last Saturday here in Melbourne. Uh, it was good to see so many people there uh, talk about Michael and his contribution, not just to 3CR, but to society in general. It's interesting when you go to something like that, everybody's got different memories and uh, somebody I've known for a long time said to me, look, uh, Joe, that's not the Michael Smith on you. And I said, well, that's the way it goes. We all have different memories and uh, we all interact differently with different people. That's the nature of existence. I'd also like to thank a special thank you to Beth Matthews, who had a major operative procedure on Wednesday and turned up at the commemoration on Saturday. And... Uh, 
that was an extraordinary courageous move considering the amount of pain she was in so if you're a free cr listener you'll know that she presents uh, radical philosophy and community radio 3cr now if you wonder what anarchy is all about no it's not about remembering the dead an anarchist society is a voluntary non-hierarchical society based on two principles two principles it's about creating a society where you break down the foundation stone of people who concentrate power and wealth in their hands. So it's the struggle to share power and share wealth. A very simple concept. It's inequalities in power and wealth which give people in authority the power to determine the lives of billions of people as we see every day around the world. Now, let's start off with China and Australia. Now, I'm not going to go into the little spat we're having regarding this and that, but I'm very interested in spotting the difference. Now, I remember when I was a younger lad, you'd get get these little cartoon books and you'd spot the difference, spot the difference between page A and page B, which look essentially the same. Now, we think in Australia that somehow... We are different to the Chinese government. We are different to the Chinese Communist Party. And we're told constantly that national security laws are draconian. Now, look, I agree 100%. Chinese national security laws are draconian, as we see in the case of Chang Li. They are draconian laws which are there in place to ensure that the predominance of the Chinese Communist Party continues ad infinitum. So let's look at our national security laws because we, we have a habit in Australia of not looking internally. For example, obviously we're quite concerned about what's happened to the Muslim minority in uh, China's western provinces and we need to be concerned. But we don't seem to equate that with the treatment we dish out to Aboriginal Australia. Torres Strait Islanders over the decades. So I want to look at the national security laws and see if there isn't much of a difference. Because national security laws are there basically to protect the status quo. So, now in Australia, we have laws, and you can check this out if you think I'm making this up, and a lot of people think I'm making this up when I speak about this. We have laws which mean the federal police can take you off the street any time they like because they believe you may inadvertently have information that may assist them in their investigations. They can hold you in secret for up to seven days, if not 14. And if you refuse to answer questions during that period, you can be charged with an offence and you can be jailed for up to seven years. And if you tell anybody about the fact that you have been taken away and held in secret, you can be charged. That's pretty good. I reckon the Chinese Communist Party could learn from that national security law. Now, we have national security laws in this country which allow the Attorney General of the day, that's the Federal Attorney General, to ban any organisation he or she wants at any time, because they may pose a threat to Commonwealth interests. You like that? May pose a threat to Commonwealth interests. And if you continue to be a member of that 
banned organisation or speak up in its defence, you can be arrested and jailed for up to 25 years. And I'm not making this up. And if you continue to raise money for that organisation, you can be jailed for up to 25 years. Now, that's a national, Australian national security law. I'm sure we could find an equivalent in the Chinese national security laws. Then we have the situation of secret trials in this country and people being secretly convicted and secretly imprisoned because they've and they've, contra, con, they've, they've uh, broken this country's so-called national security laws. So secret trials, secret convictions, secret imprisonment. It's not used often, but it's there. It was used recently. It's there. Now, I'm sure the Chinese Communist Party has got an equivalent in China. And it could go on. You can be jailed in this country for being involved in a meeting, a trade union meeting. You can be asked questions about that trade union meeting. If you fail to answer those questions, you can be jailed under current legislation. I'm sure the Chinese Communist Party is an equivalent. Then you've got the ludicrous situation that if you're a member of the CFMMEU, the Construction, Forestry, Mining, Maritime and Energy Union, that you've got less legal rights and somebody's imported a billion dollars of uh, methamphetamine into this country. I'm sure there is an equivalent somewhere in China regarding independent trade unions. And do you know that it's illegal to strike in this country outside a limited period during an enterprise bargaining uh, agreement uh, period when you've got to jump through so many hoops that it's almost impossible? And if you do jump all the hoops, then the courts can always ban that strike and they do with monotonous regularity. So, look, I could go on and on, but let's be realistic. When we look at national security laws and we look at what's happening in China and we look at what's happening in Australia, it can be hard to spot the difference. Well, the difference is I'm speaking to you and I wouldn't be able to speak to you in China. I mean, as an anarchist, I'd be arrested and, you know... I'd disappear. I mean, the reason I can speak to you is basically, let's be realistic, we're irrelevant. We're on the margins of the margins of the margins as far as ideas in the society is concerned. Could you imagine what would happen and how national security laws would be used to try to stymie a movement which is based on the idea of sharing power and holding wealth in common? nationalising resources? Could you imagine the hysteria, not just in the corporate own media and the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, but could you imagine the hysteria generally, the character assassinations, the amount of the laws which will be put in place? We've seen with COVID-19, obviously that's a health emergency, but we can see how quickly Things can be put in place which uh, limit freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of movement in this country. Obviously, in this situation, it's a health crisis. But the same laws could come into place during a political crisis, national security. So think about it. Think about how little freedoms we have in this country.
And ultimately, let's not forget that of all the Western democ- liberal democracies, let's not forget we are the only Western democracy that has no constitutional protections for the individual against the arbitrary exercise of state power. So federal parliament had enough people in it that wanted to ban or, let's say, imprison, as we've seen with refugees and asylum seekers, blue-eyed two-year-olds because they were the spawn of the devil and both houses of parliament voted for it. It's highly unlikely the High Court's going to find some way out of that particular situation, looking at the Australian Constitution, which gives you no protection against the arbitrary exercise of state power. So if you think I'm making all this up, don't ring me. I'm not interested. Have a look at the legislation. You'll be shocked at how similar, in many regards, the Chinese government's national security laws are to the Australian national security laws. The big difference is, obviously, in China there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the party and people would like to express their opinions in Australia because we're so marginal, so irrelevant, so unimportant. You know, we're allowed to linger on. That's the difference. But the laws are there. The laws are there if they need to be put in place. And it's very simple to say that individuals and groups are fret to this country's security when the legislation not only talks about individual threats but threats to Commonwealth property. You listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscano. I'm hosting today's program. Now, I've got an eclectic mixture of topics. The great thing about doing the Anarchist World this week is I don't have to go through some type of committee or get permission to talk about various things. What interests me is what's happening in the world today, both locally and overseas, and it interests me because I'm interested in the concept of power, how power is exercised, who exercises power, who has wealth, whether it's concentrated in fewer fewer hands, whether his power has been concentrated in fewer, in fewer hands. And obviously, we see this. Now, Myanmar, why now? Myanmar. It's interesting, I've been uh, taking a particular interest in Myanmar uh, for not the fact that I'm particularly, you know, that interested but I am interested because Myanmar has always had issues at its peripheries with its borders and it's been involved in a whole heap of wars with the Karen, you know, the Rohingya and the list goes on and on for decades. See, and Myanmar is really the last vestige of post-World War II Japanese fascism, the last vestige, because the military junta which seized power in 1962 and retained power till about 2012 and continued to retain power to an extraordinary degree between 2012 and 2021, has had no hesitation in using violence against its own people. And those of us who are old, old enough to remember, remember the student uprising that occurred in Myanmar in 1988 and the thousands possibly tens of thousands of students who were slaughtered in the streets by the Myanmar military. And then we saw 
the Buddhist uprising in 2007 and the Buddhist monks were put down in the same brutal manner. So what's different in 2021? Well, what's different in 2021 is that the military felt they were losing power because the constitution under which Myanmar works currently was set out by the the Burmese military in order to in order for them to retain power. And with the strength of parliamentary democracy and the strength of one particular party, we've seen the military sideline. And so they felt that let's go back to the good old days when we were in total control. Let's go back to the good old days. And they think that they'll get a little bit of Chinese uh, support. And we had the coup a week ago. And the decision the people of Myanmar need to make and the decision we need to make is the fear of going out in the streets, the fear of showing your dissatisfaction with the coup, the fear of being slaughtered in the streets by a military which has no hesitation in using its armed forces in order to violently put down any protest and the fear of living in fear, the fear of the military hardening their position, increasing their power, as we saw with the Nazis in Germany in the mid-1930s as they seized more and more state apparatus, and the fear of living in fear of that knock on the door, of being removed, of being taken away, I've been summarily executed, I've been pushed into a labour camp, I've been imprisoned for decades. And that's the balance that the Burmese people are now facing. The fear of coming out into the streets or the fear of going back to 1962, the fear of going back to 1988, the fear of going back to 2007. And for a few days, the Burmese people, the people of Myanmar, were a little bit hesitant. They didn't know what to do. They feared the armed forces. But what we've seen over the last week is a popular rebellion. We've seen the people take to their streets with their pots in their pans. We've seen the people stare down the police and the armed forces. Because their fear of going out to the streets today and protecting the limited democracy they had and the limited freedoms they had gained over the last four to five years outweighs their fear of living in fear. I mean, Australians have really no understanding of what it's like, except maybe for Indigenous people in this country, really have no understanding of what it's like to live in fear because we are ultimately a depoliticised society, more interested in the periphery than the, the important aspects. But living in fear of that knock on the door is what drives the Burmese people who've got an immediate memory of what it was like to live in a dictatorship to take to the streets, whether they succeed or not in their rebellion, and they seem to be succeeding because obviously the armed forces got a problem because many of the troops in the Burmese army, the Myanmar army, are conscripts, and you can't really trust conscripts to 
train their weapons on their own people, they've got a problem. And with the United Nations Social, uh, with the United Nations Security Committee passing a unanimous resolution, although watered down by Russia and China, uh, that uh, raised uh, concerns regarding the military coup in Myanmar, it's quite possible the military authorities, if the mass protests continue, and people's fear of the moment outweighs their fear of living in fear for decades and that popular counter-revolution may occur. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Obviously, when you're an activist, there's always that fear. When you take an action to highlight an issue, there's always that fear, not just the fear of arrest, but the fear of marginalisation, the fear of ostracisation, the fear of losing your job, the fear of being ridiculed. There's all these fears. Every time you take an action, whether it's a small protest, whether it's a large protest, whether it's a petition, whether you join, you know, something like public interest before corporate, there's always that little fear. But what I say to people, balance. Balance the fear you feel at a particular moment, which with the fear of what it would be like to live under a more authoritarian regime. If there's one thing we've seen in Australia, as I spoke about these national security laws, which are relatively recent phenomenon of this country, is that we do have the structure via which a more authoritarian um, government can limit so-called freedoms. The structure is there. And whether it happens or not, to a large degree, depends, as we see in Myanmar, on people having the courage to fight City Hall. Because there's one thing I've learnt, been a radical activist for over 50 years, is you don't... is courage. I'm not saying I've got any courage. Obviously, I'm, I'm self-employed. It makes it easy. I'm not working for somebody. But the courage to think that you can fight City Hall... Because the most important weapon that people who exercise power have is the weapon that crushes any spirit of rebellion in you. Because you think, what's the point? You can't fight City Hall. You can't win. And as I say to people, think of that small group of Quakers in the British Empire who are in the 1820s began that anti-slavery movement and think of the momentum that grew and the fact that although slavery is an issue in certain parts of the the world, it is not the major issue it was. It's not a, a central feature. Personal slavery, I'm not talking about white slavery, a central feature of most uh, economic uh, uh, situations. So, you know, think about it. So it's a balance as the people of Myanmar are teaching, it's the balance about the fear of the moment, the fear of the consequences, and the fear of living in fear for decades. And that's what activism is about, is about confronting that fear. It's about taking that step. It's about becoming involved. It's about saying enough is enough. And it may take a decade, it may take two decades, it may take a century, it may take a thousand years. But ultimately... Human progress and human liberty is dependent 
on people facing those fears and taking that first step. All right, let's move on. Surveillance capitalism. I'm not talking about those cameras on the streets that are everywhere. That's just surveillance. Surveillance capitalism where you make a buck. Now, we all love Facebook and we all love Twitter and we all love this and we all love that because it's three. Well, we think it's three, F-R-E-E. But surveillance capitalism is alive and well. What surveillance capitalism is about... It's about profit, private investment for private profit, which is based on collecting information about you. That's right. It's about putting advertisements in front of your face. It's about you buying things. It's about increasing the number of eyeballs on a particular platform, increasing the advertising revenue, increasing the return to these corporations. That's what surveillance capitalism is all about. COVID-19 is a shot in the arm. That's right. It's a shot in the arm for surveillance capitalism. If there is one part of the economy that has done really well out of COVID-19, it's those platforms which rely on your information to increase their profits. So COVID-19 is that shot in the arm, that shot in the arm of caffeine or pephidine or whatever to give give them that energy to maximise their profits. And if you look at the share markets around the globe, it's those companies which rely on collecting your information to augment their profits which have done exceptionally well during the COVID-19 crisis. And we've seen that over and over and over again. The other sections of the economy that has done exceptionally well during the COVID-19 crisis is those corporations, which again are based on particular platforms on the World Wide Web, who use poorly paid, insecure, so-called contract labour in order to provide services like home delivery of food during the COVID-19 crisis, and they've done extraordinarily well. Obviously, the great impact there is on their workers, but the great impact, as far as surveillance capitalism is concerned, is the amount of information that's been able to be collected, used, analysed, in order to maximise profits for major corporations. So... I'm not telling you not to use the net. Obviously, it has some very uh, important organisational capacities as we see on a day-to-day basis. It doesn't mean that it's going to mean that uh, there's any any major change, but there is that organisational capacity. It's a way of educating yourself. But the thing is, you need to be really, really careful about the amount of personal information you are willing to share with a private corporation which can ban you at any particular point in time and whose very business model is dependent on your personal information. You're listening to the Anarchist World this week broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. 
My name is Joseph Rascomi. I'm hosting today's program. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. You can uh, email me at anarchistage at yahoo.com or, pips or info at pibci.net. Facebook page, as I said before, I do use a lot of stuff. Facebook page, Joseph Toscano, Toscano for the Public, YouTube channel, Public Interest Before court, Corporate Interest, Instagram, Pipsy underscore AUS, and the list goes on and on. You can really, you can write to me, and I do answer letters, to Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You can join Public Interest Before Corporate Interests by going to pipsy.net. You can always leave messages on 0439395489. Now, I normally don't do much consumer law or consumer stuff of the anarchist world this week, but I thought I would look at something which is growing, a real evil in society, in Australian society, which is growing. It's a new business model which targets the elderly. And I'm not talking about privately owned aged care facilities. We know all about them, how they target the elderly. But I'm talking about people, elderly people who are living in their own homes, who continue to live in their own homes. And let's not forget that over 90% of people, elderly people, continue to live in their own homes until they die. But the problem is, with an increasingly ageing population in this country... And the fact that many elderly people cannot rely on superannuation contributions because there was no superannuation when they were working or minimal superannuation. They rely on an aged care pension which barely keeps body and soul together in order to survive. And let's not forget that a lot of these people are asset rich, not because you know they're investors, that 8% of Australians which uh, make their living from investing in inverted commas, but because... They've, they've paid off their own home through a lifetime of labour during an era when housing was seen as a necessity, not a speculative commodity. So they're sitting in these expensive homes, over a million dollars, two million dollars, suburbs around the city. The roof is falling apart. The plumbing is falling apart. And they don't have the resources in order to fix those homes, and, and for a number of reasons. A lot of it's due to privatisation. In the past, local councils, especially when they were smaller, before they were amalgamated, local councils provided a service for elderly people at cost price to assist them with repairs. That's disappeared because of privatisation. Local councils, very few local councils, now provide such a service to the elderly residents, although they're paying significant rates, and you'd expect a service like this because of the amount of rates that people are paying on uh, prices of properties which are escalated through the roof, through no fault of their own. So you've got this large market. You like that? Market. That's the key, market. If you want to make a buck in a capitalist society based on the concept of private investment for private profit, you need a market. And a number of corporations have been set up over the last five to six years that have a really interesting business model which is based on the exploitation of the elderly and the disabled. Now, if I started 
slanging off at the elderly on the anarchist world this week. It wouldn't take me long to be accused of ageism and having, you know, been taken off air. At the same time, as a society and as local, state and federal governments, we allow corporations which are using a business model which is designed to target and exploit the elderly to grow and grow and grow. And various platforms on the World Wide Web have allowed these corporations to grow. And what I'm talking about is elderly people who need minimal repairs or need repairs on ageing physical infrastructure, roofs, plumbing, gardening, the list goes on and on. So what we are seeing is corporations who employ people, not subcontractors, they actually employ them and give them the basic wage. And when they're sent out to look at this situation, the policy, the new business model is reliant on them overcharging by maybe a thousand percent, two thousand percent for repairs and saying to the elderly person, Well, we know you can't afford it, but you could do it with you can do it with afterpay. Or you could put a mortgage in your house. It's only a small mortgage. And we'll do the necessary roof repairs. Or we'll do the the plumbing repairs. And we're seeing more and more of these corporations. So when people go to the net the first thing that flashes up on their mind when they say looking for roof repairs is these, 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 these corporations whose business model is based on this. And when they listen especially to radio, there are advertisements after advertisements after advertisements promoting these corporations who use this business model in order to maximise their profits. It's not a matter of the tradesperson who turns up at your house to do the, the repairs getting the profit. It goes back to the corporations and obviously they use these platforms in order to extend their feelers around. So a little bit of advice. As I said, I don't usually give consumer advice, but a little bit of advice. The bigger the corporation, the more you've got to worry about. If there is a local newspaper in your area, look at the advertisements in the local newspaper. If somebody is willing to advertise in the local newspaper, it means maybe... You can put a bit of pressure on them and the paper in terms of the type of quotes you receive for uh, necessary repairs. Word of mouth is also useful. There are many, many, many contractors, many self-employed uh, people, tradespeople doing extraordinary amount of work for a reasonable price out there. And they're being pushed aside by these large corporations with the fancy advertising and the so-called five-star ratings on social platforms, they've been pushed out of business by what we describe as the McDonaldization of uh, home repairs. So think about it. If you need these repairs and you're elderly and you've got limited resources and somebody says, well, put a mortgage in your home and we'll fix your roof, or somebody says, well, put it on afterpay and we'll fix your roof or fix the plumbing, or you need tens of thousands of dollars of repairs, you know, have nothing to do with them. Because it's not just a matter of 
a business model. It's also a matter of putting pressure on people who believe their homes are going to explode or going to burn down or they're going to, the roof is going to collapse. It's a real issue. It's becoming a dominant issue because it's a business model which we have allowed to flourish in this country because the organisations which are out there theoretically to protect you in these situations are so poorly funded by state and federal governments they're not able to do their jobs. It's all very well saying this law is in place, this law is in place, this law is in place. The reality is if you can't enforce those particular consumer protection laws, they're useless. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. Well, you think COVID-19's over, don't you? You think the vaccine's going to provide protection? Well, it will. It will provide protection. Maybe not 100%, but it will provide protection. You think it's business as usual. You think of the economic pain is just, is, is finished. Think again. The economic consequences of COVID-19 are just beginning to be felt. Through the increased job seeker payments and the job keeper payments, most people have been able to survive economically during the COVID-19 crisis. And some people have done better than they would have done if there was no COVID-19 crisis because of the miserable, miserable payments from uh, JobSeeker. But as we see JobKeeper coming down, the reality is that all those people who have put their mortgages on hold, on hold, they still got to pay the money and the extra money, and all those businesses that have come to some type of agreement with their the owners of the business they rent have come to some type of agreement to defer, and the key word is defer rent payments, during a period where they've had no income or minimal income through JobKeeper. The fact is, as JobKeeper disappears and as the nature of interaction our society has changed and continues to change as we see that through these various platforms not everybody needs to go into work in order for society to function and for you to make a buck the reality is that the pain is just beginning there's over 65,000 people or homes in Australia where payments are still deferred and there's tens of thousands of businesses where rent has been deferred. But as JobKeeper disappears, you will find that many of these businesses will be forced to close down and many individuals will be bankrupted through no fault of their own because of people who own the property chasing them for outstanding rent. And the fact is that the amount of money that goes through the door will not increase or will increase minimally. So the economic pain is just beginning. Because when the federal government was faced with the prospect of an economic collapse, it did the right thing, it printed money, 
provided resources to individuals to survive during that period. But as we come to the vaccination stage and austerity becomes the name of the game in Australia, remember that uh, our Federal Treasurer, Mr Frydenberg, is a great fan of uh, Margaret Thatcher. He was a great fan of austerity, the failed austerity uh, programs. The fact is that those who will be suffering the most are not those with government jobs. Most of them will continue to function. And not those in, who work for large corporations. But the majority of people who've borne the brunt economically of the COVID-19 crisis are those in the retail sector, those in the hospitality sector, those in the tourist sector who will continue to bear the brunt for years to come. And these are the people who've got no savings because of the poor wages which are dissed out in these areas. And many of these jobs are insecure and part-time. So the economic pain is just beginning. And if you think that somehow you'll be able to trade your way out of that, of that hole you find yourself in, the reality is that sooner or later, the piper in a capitalist society needs to be paid and you are the person who's paying the piper. You listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the community radio network. That doesn't mean you should despair. What it means is that increased pressure should be placed on governments to ensure that this situation does not occur. Now I understand there are murmurings that stamp duty should be removed when you on housing should be removed and I know that uh, steps have been taken in the Australian Capital Territory which will see the uh, stamp duty will disappear in that state. Now look I'm a great fan of stamp duty but I'm not a great fan of what's happening to stamp duty today because what happens to stamp duty today it goes into consolidated revenue so a tax which is levied when you purchase a house, and it's a significant tax, it can be run into tens of thousands, if not a hundred thousand plus dollars, goes into consolidated revenue. Now, you would think that in the midst of a housing crisis, and yes, we do have a housing crisis, irrespective of what you're told, especially by the state government in Victoria, we do have a housing crisis of escalating, escalating prices, rapidly escalating prices during a period of increasing job insecurity. You know, it's just extraordinary. Although interest rates are minimal, we do have a housing crisis. And over 40, maybe up to 60% of the Australian population, irrespective of how low interest rates are, because of the wage system, because of insecure work, unstable work, will never be able to achieve the Australian dream, in inverted commas, owning their own home, paying off a house during their lifetime. They will never even be able to put their foot on the bottom rung. When you've got to pay a million dollars plus for a house, a two-bedroom house somewhere in the middle of suburbia, you realise how difficult things are, especially... The fact is that wages have not kept up with the explosion of housing prices, which is directly attributable to the fact 
that invest that housing has been made into a commodity and that in Australia if you inv- if you own more than one home you can claim a legitimate legal tax deduction so if you try to get your foot on the bottom rung no luck this is in the private market so what would happen if the Money that was made from stamp duty, and I'm familiar with the Victorian situation, anywhere between 6 to $7 billion a year, was earmarked for public housing. What would happen? Let's look at it logically. I mean, people say, Joe, you need to look at this logically, even in a capitalist society. Let's look at it. Let's not talk about reform or revolution or anything like that. Let's look at it logically. Capitalist framework, private investment for private profit. Public housing. Now, stamp duty revenue was quarantined for public housing. What would happen? Let's look at it. $6 billion, you could spot purchase. And what spot purchasing means is buying homes around the city and in regional Victoria. And this is the same for every other state in the, in the Federation. You, didn't, you don't need to meet, build huge apartments and put people with the same problems in the same complex. You spot purchase through the community. You spread the uh, infrastructure as far as public housing is concerned for every suburb in the state, every regional town. You could, ha- you could spot purchase of $6 billion up to 25,000 homes every year. 25,000 homes, you could house 100,000 people every year. Within a decade, you could house a million people. Within 10 years, you could house a million people in Victoria in public housing. So what happens when people live in public housing, especially spot-purchased public housing? What happens? First of all, what we see is a breakdown in the large metropolises which are created where people you know, on limited incomes are all put together. We see people become member of a community. Obviously, there'll be resistance, but sometimes there isn't, and many times there isn't. People have a greater chance of being integrated into a wider community because their children go to the local school, their children go to the same businesses, their children go to the same sporting clubs. So public housing is secure housing. It's much more secure than rental, private rental, where it's in the majority of cases a one one to two-year contract. So you've got security. That security means that children have a greater possibility of being educated, greater possibility of uh, getting friends from a wider network of people, a greater possibility of growing in a more supportive environment. That's one thing. Secondly, because the rent in public housing is limited to 25% of your income, that means that there is more disposable income. So even although you may be on a limited income, say job, you know, uh, you, know um, you may be on uh, Social Security benefits, you've got a greater amount of money which can be spent in the community. And as we know, people with limited income tend to spend most of the money they have in order to satisfy their basic human needs. As the pool of public housing increases from, you know, 1% to 5% to 10% to 20%, what happens is 
the competition for private housing decreases, especially at the lower end of the market. I'm not talking about $10 million mansions. The, you know, They continue to be $10 million mansions. But I'm talking about the lower end of the market. There are fewer people looking for housing. Therefore, that tends to drive down cost of that housing, which allows people to put there who want to buy a home and not live in the public housing sector. It does allow them to move from the public housing sector into the private housing sector and put their foot on the lower rung of home ownership as prices drop. As prices drop in that uh, in that uh, area, what happens is rents drop. So investing in public housing, diverting stamp duty revenue, stamp duty revenue which is uh, levied when you buy a home into public housing is a win, 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 win situation for everybody. It's a win situation for the individual. It's a win situation for children. It's a win situation for the community. It's a win situation for social cohesion. It's a win situation for education. It's a win situation as far as housing affordability is concerned. It's a, it goes on and on. Obviously, there will be some negatives, but the in, in life, you balance the negatives and the positives, and obviously the positives will be much more than any perceived negatives. As we see, as I said before, the same analogy in Myanmar, the fear of going out in the streets now and the fear of living in fear for decades if the military junta is able to impose their will unresisted on the Myanmar people. It's the same with public housing. So why is there no discussion about public housing in this country anymore? Why during the COVID-19 crisis, which was a wonderful period via which to expand the public housing sector, we saw no expansion of the public housing sector? And it's because for far too long... Both the Liberal National Party and the ALP, the Alternative Liberal Party, have jumped on the neoliberal bandwagon. They've been beating the drum of deregulation. They've been beating the drum of privatisation, the drum of globalisation, the drum of corporatisation. And that's why I say to people, now's the time to think. And as I said before, they don't care if you throw stones outside the tent. You can throw as many stones as you like on the tent. If the tent is taut enough and the stone is too small, it bounces off. But they are concerned when people like you and me walk into the tent and gatecrash their party. And what's their party? Their party's electoral politics. Every three to four years we go through the charade of electing representatives to make decisions for us for the next three to four years and we know the parliamentary strings of the puppets, the parliamentary puppets are pulled by that small section of society that owns the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. But let's not forget, this is their theatre, this is their arena. They don't want anybody to muck it up. So we need people who are not part of a hate brigade, who are not there to divide us in terms of gender orientation, race, class, the list goes on and on, but who are there who want major economic reform, who want to see the public good to be put forward before private wealth. That 
when we get those type of people involved in that electoral process, then we are raining on their parade. They begin to be concerned, so they begin to take on the rhetoric. The rhetoric, but it needs to be, you know, of equality. It needs to be sustained pressure. For example, when we were involved in 2018 during the uh, Victorian election campaign, we were putting a little bit of pressure on the alternative Liberal Party, masquerading as the ALP in Victoria, one of the most pro-privatisation governments in this country's history. As we put more and more pressure on them, they made more and more announcements about public housing, like things they promised to build, you know, another thousand public housing units, which they haven't done and which they had no intention of doing. But they had to change the rhetoric, change the advertising, because we walked into the tent. We were no longer, we were not just throwing stones outside the tent, we had walked into the tent and we were there to, sport, to rain on their parade, to extend the debate to change the orientation of people, to show people that there are alternatives. There are always alternatives. You can fight City Hall and you can win. And if you can't win, you can change the direction of City Hall. Look at the situation of Crown Casino. Look at the situation of the Collingwood Football Club. Look at the situation. It's taken a long time. But again, you've got to be in the tent to break that down. You've been listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. You can write to me. That's right, we still answer letters. You can write to me at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You can leave messages on 0439 0439395489. You can go to the Public Interest Before Corporate Interest YouTube channel. I do a presentation every week. I think the, the presentation, which will go up in the next week or so, will be about the fact that you can fight City Hall. You can go to the Facebook page, Joseph Toscano, Toscano for the public. No, you won't You won't find out what colour underpants I wear. I don't even remember myself. But there are a lot of uh, links there to a lot of different things that are happening around the world and in your backyard. Ultimately, change comes when you make the decision that the fear of acting is overcome by the fear of what will happen if you do nothing. And that's the key to any struggle. It's that fear about living in fear or the fear of acting. And if you can break through that hurdle, you can make a difference. So thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It has been streaming wide around the world on 3cr.org.au. The program is a podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano. You can write to me at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You can email me at anarchistage at yahoo.com or info at pipsy.net. You can go to the Anarchist Institute website, anarchistmedia.org. Public Interest Before Corporate Interest website, pipsy, P-I-B-C-I.net. Instagram, um, 
Pibsi, P-I-B-C-I underscore A-U-S. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. And if you're listening to this program for the first time, welcome. And if you're listening to this program for the 5,000th time, commiserations. Thank you once again for listening to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, use all the platforms available, most importantly of all, overcome that fear of acting so that we don't live in fear for the rest of our lives. Thank you once again for being a listener to the Anarchist World this week and hopefully soon you'll become more than a listener. You'll be starting to act in order to promote your interests and the interests of your family and your friends. Listening to the Anarchist World this week, next week on your local community radio station. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week, Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Brainwash minds. Oh, larger. So it's up to us. The people, we need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.